I, I read something that at one point you uh, were calculating whether or not it made sense to get an airplane, fill the airplane yeah. with people, and fly to buy all the Bitcoin in person. But it sounds like yeah. you didn't do that. But so, what, so what happened we, here? We didn't. So, I mean, what you want to do is go buy Bitcoin, send it to Japan, sell it for yen, turn that to dollars, send it back. And then you just start hitting all these roadblocks. Like What, they think it's money laundering or something like that, right? Right, exactly. And that's yeah. where it's going. Is that like the actual place is going like, actually, every single day, I would like to send like $5 million in the same direction from one currency to another one. This is the sketchiest fucking thing I've ever seen, right? Like in order to get a banking license, you have to like take a test. And it's like if someone does exactly this, what are they doing? And you circle money laundering, right? All right, you're about to listen to one of the craziest episodes we've recorded yet. It's with Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, about an hour into the show, I asked Sam what time it was, and he said 3.30 in the morning. So the guy, the guy's a nut. He doesn't sleep. He's also got a net worth of $10 billion, so he's doing all right. He's like 28 years old. We talked about why they just acquired the naming rights to the Miami Heat Stadium, why they acquired Blockfolio, how he thinks about marketing, how he runs three different companies at one time, Alameda, Serum, and FTX, uh, his plans for acquisitions in the future, what's next for all of his companies. Uh, he talks about his Japanese arbitrage trade that got him into crypto, uh, the early days of Alameda and what that was like, and a whole lot more. Before we jump in, if you haven't reviewed the podcast, we're trying to get this thing to 100 reviews on Apple. So if you listen on Apple, head over to the review section, give it five stars, let me know what you think. All right, let's jump in. This episode is brought to you by Luca Tax and Exodus. Stay tuned for more info. Sam, it is so nice to have you here. There's a, uh, you've been one of the most requested guests, so thanks for coming on, my friend. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I want to just set the stage, right? So you run Alameda, you run FTX, and you run Serum. I know you've got a bunch of other folks who help you out with that, but you know, you've, you've got three companies yep. going on. You just bought the naming rights to the Miami Heat for 135 mil. You're one of Joe Biden's biggest donors. You bought Blockfolio last year for 150 million. Uh, how much sleep did you get this past weekend? Um, I got some last night. That was nice. It, is, <laughs> um, uh, is, is some like four hours or seven hours? What are, what are we talking about? I think days? it may have been seven. It's a good night. Um, I didn't get much of the nights before. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the Miami date hearing and, um, and then, you know, just everything else sort of continuing to go on in the background, you know, hired some people, which is exciting, but, you know, just sort of there's, there's, there's a constant stream of things that are always grabbing for attention. And one of the more brutal parts, I guess, is, you know, the combination of crypto is obviously 24 seven with the fact that I just have to take calls with a lot of people. And, you know, many of them are, are, you know, Eastern hemisphere, many, many are Western. And so those also sort of span a lot of the hours. Yeah. When you sleep, are you, how many nights a week are you sleeping in the office on the, on the famous beanbag and how often are you go? Yeah, it's, it's probably a good, good solid four or five. <laughs> nice. I like it. So Sam, we're going to talk about a bunch people sent in over a hundred questions. So, which cool. does not usually happen. So we're not going to get to all hundred, but we're going to talk about the Miami heat. We're going to talk about FTX, Alameda. I know you've shared the arbitrage story a lot, but I'm going to ask you about it. Um, but actually yep. I want to go all the way back. I listened to a bunch of podcasts that you went on, a bunch of interviews. Um, and actually something that a lot of people didn't touch on that I was curious about is just childhood, Sam, right? I think you're yep. 28 year old years old now or 29. What was 
12-year-old Sam Bankman-Fried like? Yeah, I mean, it's like... 12-year-old Sam was, I think in some senses, kind of boring. Maybe bored and boring, sort of a little bit of both. I wasn't sort of, like, really into kid things. But but you're also in a position where you're not really able to kind of, like, hang out with a grown-up, so to speak. Um, it's just... It, it was a weird in-between state for me and felt, you know, uncomfortable. But outside of that, I think it's a really good upbringing. is you know, super... No, nothing bad happened, basically. And, and, you know, really got along with my family well and sort of a, you know, pretty nice upbringing in the Bay Area. But... You know, I didn't. I didn't do that much. I, I actually kind of struggled. It's an interesting question. I frankly struggled to answer it because I, I struggled to even think about what I did. I, I can't add up to twenty four hours in today. It gets like, I mean, I guess I slept and I went to school, but I, I maybe there's like a little bit of homework. I can't figure out what what else happened. You know. Yeah. When when do you feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people when they share the, your story go back to MIT, right, in the physics degree. When do you feel yep. like? kind of adult Sam emerged? Was it in high school or was it actually at MIT? I think it's basically at MIT. I think like some pieces of it started to emerge maybe in, in high school, but I think they're kind of tentative. And, and I think it wasn't really until college that I sort of started to, you know, learn how to live and like have, you know, real friendships and have like, um, you know, people I was close to and think about what I want to do with my life. And, you know, I think those are all things I, I only had sort of like little simulacrums of until then. Yeah. How much did your parents and like growing up on Stan Stanford's campus or near Stanford's campus influence you? In some ways a lot, in some ways not that much. I think it's sort of like, like, I don't think sort of had like, like there were a lot of ways in which it didn't, it wasn't clear what kind of very direct impact it had. But I think that it, it, it set the tone in a lot of ways. I think that, like, you know, you could probably trace back some parts of what I'm like to that. I don't know. It, it was, there was very little tension, sort of, you know, yeah. in, in, in my upbringing, in my household, you know, everyone's sort of happy with each other. And, and, and I think it's sort of maybe non-confrontational in a sense. And, and generally, um, you know, somewhat chill in some, not in always, but, but in some ways. Um, but I also think that, you know, it, there's there's ambition there, too. And I think, you know, my parents were really concerned with, you know, what impact they were having on the world and and what they could do there. They've they've tried to do a lot of things with their life, which has been really kind of inspiring to watch. And so I think that a lot of things like that probably did, you know, draw non-trivially on that. Yeah. I saw your mom runs um, Mind the Gap or she used to run it. I'm not sure yep. if she still does it. Did that. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is just charity and giving and honestly, just something I think the community and the industry could probably get better at as a whole. Did she yeah. influence you? Did I know 8,000 hours had a big influence you or 80,000, yep. whatever it is. Um, yep. Yeah, they all did. And, and, you know, I think that like, in the end, I sort of like discovered effective altruism really when I was in college. And I think that's sort of when that part of me really grew out. But I, I think seeds of it were there for a while. And I think, you know, it's something that my parents were both really supportive of and excited about when it happened. And that sort of jived with how they had been thinking about things, if not as much about how they'd been, you know, I, you know, if not as much about how they've been giving or things like that. And and so I do think that it like was a lot of influence in terms of in terms of style on how I thought about things and how I saw the world you know, if not sort of necessarily directly in what I did.
Yeah. You, um, you talk about this philosophy of basically you wanted to go to Jane Street right after MIT and you wanted to go make a, a ton of money because you wanted to donate a lot of money, right? And to donate a lot of money, yep. you have to go make a lot of money. Let's, let's talk about the, I don't want to get into the politics at all here. I don't think that's what we're here to do, but just yep. the, the Biden donation, I heard you talk about it. The reason you did it is because you felt like you could have an outsized impact on basically yeah. the campaign, if I understand that correctly. Yep. What, can you yeah. go into that just thinking? Yeah, totally. So I think that there's like, you know, the meme here, the thing that everyone says is that there's, you know, an absurdly large amount of money in politics, you know, and that's just like, uh, you, you sort of hear that it's usually not said in a very quantitative way. Uh, it's usually said to sort of imply, you know, whatever mass amounts of corruption or something like that. Um, but but definitely, you know, the takeaway that you would get if you sort of just took that, you know, kind of sentiment at face value is that like, there would be so much flowing through all of these things that like, nothing anyone could do would really have much impact on it, you know, that you know, there's like 13 quadrillion dollars, you know, being donated to everything. And, you know, there's like 52 lobbyists for every, you know, bill or, or whatever, you sort of like, would assume sort of like such large numbers that like anything that on the scale of like one person that one person could actually do which is not not affect anything and i think that just doesn't turn out to be true and it's pretty surprising that it's not true because when you think about how much impact something like the presidency can have on the world i mean whatever you think about it you know whoever you you, you think would be good or bad at it it, it clearly matters like you know if you want ballpark how much it matters like I mean, obviously, I'm not saying this is the way in which it matters, but, you know, you could look at, like, the budget, you know, and, like, how much impact does the president have on the budget? You know, what what fraction of that is sort of determined by them? And well, that's, like, obviously a super rough way of thinking about it, but I think it starts to get at, like, what order of magnitude are we talking about, you know? And, and it's big. I mean, it's, you know, I think we're up to, like, $20 trillion over a term or something like that. If you're thinking about, like, 10, you know, a few trillion dollars then, as sort of, you know, maybe an order of magnitude estimate of how much a presidency matters, then, you know, think about a campaign, right? Like a, a presidential campaign, how much is spent? Do you know, do you know what the number is? I'd say about a billion. Yeah, that's the right order of magnitude. It's actually grown a fair bit in the last few cycles, uh, but it's still, you know, maybe it's a few billion. And, and so just like to start off with, I mean, you're talking about like, you know, spending the world together is spending a few billion on something that's going to determine in like a few trillion, you know, and already you sort of have this factor of a thousand there, which is a pretty big difference that a billion dollars are having a trillion dollars worth of impact, right? Whatever that means, obviously I'm being super vague about a lot of this because I mean, who the hell knows is, is really the answer. Well, I, what I'm going to, what I was going to ask is like the effect of altruism, right? My understanding of right. it is you donate and give money to things that have are kind of lower hanging fruit, right? And where you can make yep. a huge impact, right? So you wouldn't donate to Harvard, for example, you would right. donate to, uh, uh, you know, something like uh, some so in low hanging fruit. Anti-malaria right? foundation, you know, something. Yeah. But a lot of that is dependent on, on tr being able to track these things, right? So how do you yep. track if you give $5 million to, uh, I forget the, it was like Dustin Moskowitz's thing. I forget what the, Future yeah, forward. future forward is, yeah. Uh, how do you track, okay, 5 million bucks, they probably put that into like Facebook and Instagram ads. Like, how are you tracking right. the success of that? So it's a good question. And not surprisingly, for a lot of history, the answer has been 
not just you can't track it, but I mean, it's much worse than that. It's sort of like what you would worry that would imply, you know, which is that like not only can you not track it, but like even if you sit down and have them describe to you what it did, it's it's often just like really hard to, 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 to figure out how that had any impact. Um, and it's true of a lot of, of a, whole, a lot of where money in politics goes that like you trace it through and you're like, OK, where did this money go? And like after like three hours of trying to figure out, you know, what it was doing, you're like, oh, I see. Here's like a long-standing senator who has a lot of political impact, and like this money went to fund their re-election campaign, even though they are 99% to win, because you know the person running this owed them a favor. Yeah. And I, it's not so much I'd say it's doing like actively evil, so much as like sort of, I mean, doing nothing. You know, more so than anything else. And so one thing you can do is you can run RCTs. You know, if what you're trying to do is something like make it you know, uh, remove barriers for people being able to vote, you know, Im improving polling station access or, or something like that. Um, you can look at, you know, impact on votes cast in that district. And so post hoc, you actually often can sort of like do some some general studies on these, you know, what impact does it have? You know, none of this is perfect, but but you can do RCTs like that. And, and they have, you know, they, they, they really do mean something. And, and so I think that that's sort of like, the first answer to the question is, well, eventually you kind of want to do an RCT, you know, the same thing you do with anything else. And what you'll find is, you know, that there sort of isn't some weird trick here. It's like, you know, the impact of these things is actually kind of on the same level as what you would expect, given the quantities involved, that like a few billion dollars has like something like 100% swing in election probability or, or and what, whatever, I'm sort of just going for orders of magnitude here. But I think that is, you know, often how it sort of works out. Yeah. When they're kind of like, let's look at three of the wealthiest Americans of all time, Jeff Bezos, yeah. uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller, right? Yeah. Two, two very different ways of giving, right? Someone like Rockefeller uh, is very, is very religious. And he gave money from the second he ever made a dollar, he would give, you know, 30% of that dollar away, right? And yep. he, he was always giving a lot of money away. And not only that, he didn't always smack his name on things. Whereas if you look at someone like Carnegie or, or someone like in modern day times, Jeff yep. Bezos, they, their mindset is, look, it doesn't make sense for me to donate right now because I can compound a dollar and it'll have more of an impact later on in my life right. than it will now. Is there, is there a right or a wrong way to think about that? Is, are one of those people right and one's wrong? So not necessarily. I, I don't think that there is necessarily a right and a wrong, and I think either could be. But what I'd say is like one of those is clearly going to do good. You know, like if you're donating as you're making money and you're donating to good places, that, that's sort of straightforwardly doing good. If your plan is to make a lot of money and not donate it and, and then compound it and compound it and compound it and then eventually donate, maybe that'll do good. But it doing good is sort of conditional on that donation, is at least conditional on that donation eventually coming and being good when it does, you know, that whole argument falls apart if you're not sure you're actually going to do it in the end. And and that, that is a real worry, I think, I, especially given that, like, you know, it's not clear how you enforce that someone's going to other than that, like, you know, they definitely said they would. What actual real signs do we have that makes us feel like they're going to follow through on this and that they're going to follow through sort of faithfully and that they're really going to try hard to do the best they can for the world? And, and I think just as importantly that, you know, if one of the things you're doing is waiting, I, I think that gives you the opportunity, but at the same time, sort of the responsibility to stay on the lookout for exceptionally good opportunities and give if they come up, Yeah. you know, and, and are they actually going to do that? Or 
is this all just sort of an excuse? And if they're actually going to do it, I think it can be great. I don't even know if it's worse. Maybe it's better. There are reasonable arguments for it, but there's also reasonable skepticism towards a lot of people doing it. And so I think the big thing I'd say is just like, is there real evidence that, that they're going to follow through here? You know, I'm not sure when I'm going to give. And, and, and I think, you know, it, it may be spread out over time. You know, there's at least going to be a fair bit of building up. I mean, right now, for instance, it's, you know, not the right time for me to give the bulk of it because, I mean, I'm, you know, businesses are, are still compounding quite quickly. But I, I think it's really important that I at least give some each year and that I, I think hard about where I'm going to give and try and stay up to date so I can prove, I mean, to the world, but just as importantly to myself, that yeah. this isn't bullshit, that I really do mean it. And that's the big thing that I'd be looking for is really credible, expensive signaling that, you know, this isn't just a, a thing they're saying. Yeah. How, how much, if you don't mind me asking, how much did you donate last year? I think it was, I mean, I, I think it was like, you know, eight or 10 total, yeah, roughly. So it's, you know, it, 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 it's something it's not, it's not hopefully going to be the biggest that I do. Um, but at least, you know, it's something to try and keep me honest yeah. and, 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 and just as much keep me engaged and committed and thinking about it. Totally. All right, let's get past some of that stuff. We're going to jump into crypto, but I have one question about your time at Jane Street, which is yeah. from my understanding, uh, you're on a webinar with us. I think it was a few months ago with um, like the LMAX CEO and a few other folks. Yeah. And um, you mentioned your time at, at Jane Street. I think you were trading international ETFs. And yep. um, from my knowledge about international ETFs, they are one of the messier things on Wall Street. Um, Absolutely. So can you just like my knowledge kind of stops there. I just know they're really messy. Yeah. Why are they so messy? And like, and, yeah, and then totally. the second question is going to be, what are some things about international stock markets that maybe Americans don't understand? So either or, I don't yeah. know if they're even related, but. They, there are, and there's sort of two reasons that they're messy. Um, so one reason that they're messy is, is, is time zones. So it's 2.30 PM on a Monday on the East Coast. And so right now, you know, the New York Stock Exchange is open international ETFs are, are trading. So these are US listed ETFs that have foreign companies. So those are all trading right now in New York. But Samsung itself, and in fact, all of the Korean companies are not trading right now. Um, because in Korea, it's like, I don't know, like 4am or something. I don't remember exactly what time zone they're in, but it's the middle of the night. And so you think of trading ETFs as doing arbitrage, you know, like you buy the S&P 500, and then you sell SPY, if that's the way the ARP set sets up or vice versa, right? That doesn't work if if Apple isn't trading at the same time SPY is. You know, Nissan doesn't trade when a Japanese ETF trades. And so to the extent you're thinking about doing arbitrage, well, you can only do one leg at a time. And there's often like zero overlap between when you can do the ETF leg mm. and, and when you can do the stock leg. And so then you're left with this really imperfect arbitrage. And you have to think about, well, I don't know. You know, you have to think about like, what would these stocks be worth? Or when you're trading the stocks, what would the ETF be worth? And, and how do I know that, you know, when I'm going to get the chance to trade the next leg of this, it's the, you know, this trade I did is still going to look good. So that's one of the messy parts of it. Um, the other messy part is what you're hinting at, which is that foreign stock exchanges, well, they're all over the place. And some of them are very much like, you know, the New York stock exchange and some, some of them are not in some cases, sort of what you'd expect, you know, the German stock exchange is, is not very weird sort of like, you know, does about what you'd expect it would do. And, you know, as a consequence, trading a German ETF is in many ways 
not that dissimilar from trading, you know, a US ETF. But let's say you're trading a Nigerian ETF. Well, in order to trade the stocks, you need Nigerian Naira, right? How do you get Nigerian Naira? Uh, that doesn't turn out to be an easy question. You know, let's say that you're trading a Korean ETF even. Well, the Korean won is a restricted currency, so you can't just go out and buy it freely no matter what. Um, you also can't trade the stocks freely no matter what. In fact, there are like various complicated jurisdictional restrictions on that. And here's a wacky part. Well, maybe it doesn't sound wacky in crypto, but how much certainty do you think people have on what Apple is worth right now? You know, I think the answer is they know to within like a, a basis point, right? Because I don't know, it's just like trade super liquidly on, on, on US exchanges. If you want to ask what a Korean stock is worth during Korean hours or a Hong Kong stock during Hong Kong hours, they actually both have really significant taxes that they charge on every trade. So it turns out many countries have something like a 10 to 50 basis point tax on every trade that happens on their stock market. So the country is, is taxing the exchange? It's taxing, I mean, equivalently taxing the exchange, which passes it on to users or yeah. taxing the, the traders directly. Hmm. And you say what you'll put tax, but I think generally taxing net profit makes a lot more sense than taxing transaction volume. So that's another thing. Uh, you know, you, you never know exactly what exchanges are going to do. Like, I don't know, sometimes they'll shut down or shut down stocks and be like, so you can't trade this for next month. And you're like, why? And they're like, eh, I don't know. It seems kind of wacky. <laughs> and, and, and just like, well, but I, I need it to create this ETF. They're like, sorry, no, I can't. Then you go to the ETF and you're like, yo, I'm trying to create your ETF. It's got this stock in it and they're not letting anyone trade it. What you do? And he's just like, oh, Jesus, we got to deal with that again. And then the ETFs come back tomorrow. It's like, give us $30. We're like, why $30? We're like, eh, I mean, what, what do you think? It should be 20 And are like, yeah, I want it to be 20 We're like, yeah, I think it's too low. It's going to be 30 <laughs> And so it moves a little bit more towards the Wild West. You know, it's just like everything is more likely to be broken, more likely to be wide or inefficient or illiquid, more likely to just like have speed bumps you're not anticipating. The fees, I mean, I talked about like the, the these quote unquote stamp taxes, but that's just one type of tax and fee. In some countries, you end up paying like a percent all told. Oh, here's another fun one. In some countries, a stock will pay a dividend. Then three months later, they'll tell you how big the dividend was. And so it's like, how much does stock drop by on dividend day? I don't know. You know, we'll find out in a few months. Um, <laughs> it's such a mess. So it's just like, yeah, there's all these things that make it messy. And any one of them, if it were the only thing, you'd be like, yeah, whatever, you can adjust for that. But when you add like 20 of them together, all of a sudden you're like, oh God, like, you know, the market is disagreeing with me by five basis points in this product. I have no idea why. You know, yeah. there's so many things I could be messing up. There's so many things the market could be messing up. There's so many things the ETF could be messing up or the stocks. I mean, it's, it becomes a sort of like, you know, combinatorial explosion. Um, and, and that's really what, what, what makes it a messy space. Yeah. All right. This is a, this is a good time to segue. So let's, um, all right. So you're at Jane Street. Uh, a lot of people know the story, but again, a ton of people don't know the story. Uh, there was this, you know, quote unquote, kimchi premium, right? The the price of a Bitcoin in the US would trade oftentimes like 30% less than the price of a Bitcoin in Korea. Yep. Everybody had their eyes on that premium. It was really difficult though, because you had to convert these, as you mentioned, like 10 minutes ago, restricted, you know, Korean currency into dollars. That was really tough. So you went for a different arbitrage play, right? The Japanese, the yep. uh, Japanese arbitrage play. What? Right. I, I read something that at one point you uh, were calculating whether or not it made sense to get an airplane, fill the airplane yeah. with people, and fly to buy all the Bitcoin in person. 
but it sounds like yeah. you didn't do that. But so what? So what happened? We, here? we didn't. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, it's, it's like you said. So well, for crude bitcoins, were thirty percent rich or so, and everyone really wanted to do that trade. I mean, so you buy bitcoin, send to Korea, send, sell it for one, and then you're sad because then then you remember that the Korean won is a restricted currency, uh, which means that you cannot freely move it about. So like the next step is you gotta get that Korean won out of Korea and turn it into dollars, right? In order to kind of like start anew, you know, maybe you can't do that. Um, in fact, you probably can't do that, at least not for big size. So, all right, what do you do then? You can hope that like Bitcoin and Ethereum are trading at different premiums there. And they kind of like do a relative of trade. You can, I don't know, go, go to Korea with a suitcase. A, a, a bit further south, there's Japan. And um, Japan was trading like a 10% premium or something. Um, which is not as cool as the 30% premium. And it's trading about a billion dollars today, which is not as cool as like the $5 billion today that Korean was, tra was trading. But 10% at a billion dollars a day of volume is still pretty cool. It's still like absolutely, totally fucking unheard of hmm. in traditional finance. Like you just never see it. Yeah. You know, I mean, what you want to do is go buy Bitcoin, send it to Japan, sell it for yen, turn that to dollars, send it back and repeat. Um, and, and then you just start hitting all these roadblocks like this is late 2017 so like you create a coinbase account and like how long does it take for you to get kyc weeks it's like three then. months yeah, yeah. A month. Yeah. um what are your withdrawal limits on coinbase it's like many it was minuscule you know, until you had to get like kyc aml which took weeks in and of itself like exactly right so yeah. you send the dollars and like shit okay gotta get aml then you sent it from like whatever your jp morgan chase account or something and I get shut down because like, yo, you, you send money to Coinbase. They're like, yeah, they're like, cool. Your account's closed. You're like, why? They're like, I don't know. We don't, we don't really want to do with crypto. I don't know. And, and so now you got to get a new bank account. But of course, at this point, you're starting to worry that maybe, well, what's going to happen with that one? You know, is that one getting closed? The answer is, yeah, probably. So, okay, so you're playing whack-a-mole with these U.S. bank accounts. And you're trying to, to get increased withdrawal limits somehow on some U.S. exchange. You finally get that. So you, you wire in your dollars. You buy some Bitcoin. You send it out to your Japanese exchange account, then you realize you can't withdraw yen unless you're Japanese. So you gotta be Japanese and you have to get your withdrawal limits raised there. And then finally you get to the point where you can withdraw, you sell it for yen, you can withdraw the yen. Then you realize it'll only send it to a Japanese bank account. So now you're, I don't know, you're like going, looking for Japanese bank account, but also you're not, well, you gotta be Japanese again to get that. All right, so, so you're Japanese again, you get your Japanese bank account, you like send the yen there and you're like, can we send this to the US, like, no, like, why not? They're like, no, you don't have an international bank account. Okay, so now you gotta go back and get like an internationally capable Japanese bank account. And then you're like, all right, can we send this to the US? So, like, what are we doing with it? And you're like, uh, it's crypto trading. They're like, can you repeat that? They're like, yes, it's a remittance. And they're like, how much are you remitting? Will this be like more or less than $1,000? You're like, it's gonna be more than that. They're like, it's gonna be more or less than $10,000. Like, yeah, it's gonna be more than that. They're like, I'm sorry, you cannot do more than that each day. What, they think it's money and you're like, or something like that, right? Right, exactly. And that's yeah. where it's going is that like the actual place is going. You're like, actually, every single day, I would like to send like $5 million in the same direction from one yeah, currency like, to another one. They're like, the money's not coming back. So it's definitely money laundering. Now. It's only yeah. going one way yeah. to a different country. And it's a different entity. It's like this, like, you, this is like, this is the sketchiest fucking thing I've ever seen, right? Like, <laughs> this is literally, they just have like, like the, in order to get a banking license, you have to like take a test. And it's like if someone does exactly this, what are they doing? And you circle money laundering, right? Okay. Also, I don't speak Japanese, so and they don't speak English. So you hire a translator, and they're like, 
trying to translate arbitrage and this person's like what's arbitrage you're like well you know how sometimes you're doing trading on cryptocurrency exchanges and they're like you're buying bitcoin and we're like we're not well we're, we're buying it but also selling it they're like wait which are you doing buying or selling like both and they're like <laughs> why are you sending this money and okay and eventually trying to explain it they're like oh come on this is too weird of a story so so then you hire a law firm to go talk with like the physical bank teller and the branch and basically be like a professional impressive person who says they're doing arbitrage I guess, like, I still have no idea what you're talking about, but you're a lawyer. Is this legal? And the lawyer's like, yes, it's legal. And they're like, all right. And now there's no website for any of this. you got to be there physically each day on so, both so ends. You flew, so, so you flew. So you're literally in Japan this whole time? So I, we had different teams in both places. So we had a team of people who went to, who spent, like, three hours a day in a U.S. bank. And we had a different team of people. We spent like three hours a day in a Japanese. Wait, 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 and back up, Sam. Who's the we? Is are these like Jane Street buddies? Are these college friends? Like, this is post Jane Street. So this is when I started up Alameda, and this was like Alameda's first really big trade. But who just trying to spin Alameda this up? Like, who are these people? It, random selection. I mean, it was like people I knew from from, I mean, high school, from college, from effective altruism, from, I don't know, like a friend of theirs. Like it sort of like just grew, sort of out from like you know people who knew people who were. We had like 50 interns coming in and out over the first few months. I mean, it's just like hordes of people. And we have like the, the team in the United States. So you get the money off the Japanese exchange. And then the, you have to use the website to turn into dollars. But it would only do 100,000 US dollars at once. And it was like a minute long prompt that you had to click through. It was like many screens that loaded very slowly. The problem is that there's about an hour between when the wire transfer hit Coinbase and when we needed to wire out from Japan. And in that hour, we needed to buy Bitcoin, send it to, you know, Japanese exchange, Bitfly or whatever, wait for the blockchain, sell it, withdraw it to the Japanese account, wait for that transfer, turn it into dollars, and then go wire it out. And so, so we had like five minutes by the time this is over, you know, when we're at this like converting step, um, and it took a minute per $100,000. So we just all stopped what we're doing. We all broke out, got on our computers, they're just like, you know, clicking through so everybody during like, this one hour everyone during this one hour is basically doing it that's and... right and eventually like when we had like one minute left we were like all right guys it's time whatever it's that is that no more and then someone would call up you know our team in japan be like who had been basically like got in line like got to the front and they just like kept letting people pass them but like you know keeping their spot in the queue for the bank teller then we call them like all right it's time go it's like this is the notional and then he you know walk up to the bank teller and say all right with we'll like send the wire transfer now and they're like to where and like set all the details and like watched as i typed in like the reference you know this like fucking reference numbers you have everyone's like three q seven t and like no it's a g not a t i'm like no 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 you gotta cross that out it's a g not a t and 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 then eventually hopefully they submitted it before the cutoff and you lost 24 hours that was sort of the trade and it i don't know it took us a long time to scale up and get all the pieces and we got them about a week before it went away. So a couple oh. weeks, maybe. So you got a couple weeks of it in. But so, so day one that you, so once you get all this whole thing set up, you've got every intermediary. Yep. What day one that you run the arbitrage? How much money did you put in? I mean, well, day one we did like two hundred dollars. Like day one, we, we just like wanted to yeah. test, you know, go from start to finish and see what happened. What about? And the, I think we basically. What, what about once you knew, like the end of week one or something? Right. Once we knew. So you might think you do it all once you know, and it's very tempting, and like. I have a very strong instinct that tells me just 
as much size as you can. Why the fuck are you still scaling up? You know it works. Just maximize this. Either you think he's a good trader, it's not. I've had to unlearn that instinct in some circumstances because the truth is everything breaks if you try and do it too big. Everything that you think works doesn't work if you stress it too much. And they might say you have no limits. They're lying. There are limits everywhere. They won't tell you what the limits are. And they may never have had a customer who broke them before. Mm. But your goal is to be the first. Like, like literally send money from one bank account to another. If you send too big of a transfer, they're just going to close down your accounts. And you're like, why? I sent more money to my bank account. It's not good for you. You get more interest. Like, it's too big. And like, what do you mean it's too big for what? Like, what, what's that even mean? Like, it's, it, that went above your limits. Like, my deposit limits are like, yeah. Like, you didn't say we have them. Like, we didn't think you were going to send like that much money. Like, well, I told you I was going to send that much money. It's like, well, we didn't believe you, you know? I, I, but, but we did it, and then he shut you down. You're like, I don't still understand why you're shutting me down. And the answer is basically, like, they just don't even know what to do. It's like, they, they're like, I'm sure we have to file some regulatory. They just courses. throw their hands up in the air, and they're like, I, I don't want to deal with this. This is too much for me. Exactly. It's like, yeah. I might get fired. I don't even know why, but I might get fired over yeah, this. Yeah. And my bonus has nothing to do with the performance of this company. So why should I care? Like, this, is not, this customer is not going to make me money personally. But he might lose me my job if I screw yeah. something up. So by and the so, end of this whole thing, like how much mil, how many millions are you doing a day? Are we talking? Yeah, I think we. I mean, we did not have as much capital as we wanted. Also, like capital is a limiting factor. But I think we got up to ten or so, uh, you know, ten to fifteen a day at the peak. Wow. Was that um, was that a little stressful? And uh, <laughs> it was it was exciting. It was very exciting once it was working, because it just it just worked. Was that the first time in your life you realized, holy shit, I'm going to make some some funny money here? Yeah, uh, uh, that that was so. About a month earlier, like we started to get some pretty compelling whiffs of it. We hadn't quite done it, but it started to become clear it was an. It was unlucky that we hadn't done it, and that like it was going to work eventually. I think like me, the Litecoin trade on, on Coinbase or GDAX at the time. So you remember it was like late 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. a week 20, or two. Yeah. And, yeah. I don't remember why it happened, but the U.S. just went nuts over Litecoin. There was like a 20% and, premium on um, on GDAX at one point. Yeah. Yeah. There was. And so we sort of saw that and we're like, can we just do that? And we tried to, we, we hit GDAX with our elements was what stopped us. Hmm. So <laughs> we had like $10,000 a day. So it's like, all right, you know. Eventually, all your money is just dollars on Coinbase waiting, waiting, waiting to be cycled out. Um, and, you know, and say, say you're only doing 10000 a day. Um, but it became clear all of a sudden that if, like, we'd managed our withdrawal limits raised before that week, it would have been an amazing week. And I think that was the point at which you're like, all right, we are pretty sure that that's just luck. That, like, it could have been the case that we got our limits raised before that week happened. Like, I think that was sort of the point at which I started to feel like, all right, we've never quite nailed a trade yet, but basically started to feel like, I, I feel pretty convinced at this point that if we keep plugging away at this, we will. Yeah. All right, little break from the show to talk about our favorite topic, taxes. It's tax season, right? IRS just pushed back the deadline uh, about a month or so. It's time to do your taxes. Thankfully, we got Luca coming in as a partner of Empire to help us all do our taxes. Luca just raised $75 million over the course of the last year. They raised from folks like S&P, George Soros. They've been around for years, super legit. A bunch of big names in the space use them. I've been using them for one reason, which is uh, I'm cheap and uh, Luca helps you do your taxes for 20 bucks, right? They save you time, they save you money, they got all the plugins, they make it super easy for you to do your taxes. So if you've been putting off taxes, if you're dreading crypto taxes, let Luca 
make it easy for you. Head on over to tax.luca.tech forward slash empire. Also, uh, just click that link in the uh, description. It'll take you right there. All right, let me know what you think. All right, let's talk about buying Bitcoin. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've used a dozen different platforms to buy your crypto over the past few years. I've used every single platform out there. They're all pretty different, except they've got one thing in common, which is they've got these stupid high fees, right? I used to have this recurring buy setup where it was $500 uh, at a time, and I'd get hit with a $7 fee every single time, right? So I am super excited to announce that Exodus is now sponsoring the podcast. You might not have heard of Exodus, but they've been around since 2015. Their founders are real OGs. They've got 125 employees and growing pretty quickly. Big fan of Exodus for two reasons. One, you can buy $500 worth of Bitcoin instead of a $7 fee, it's a $1 fee. Pretty big difference. The other thing is they have over 130 different assets on the platform. So if Bitcoin's not your thing, Exodus has your back. Head over to exodus.com forward slash empire. You can also find the URL in the description. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. So so now you've, so, okay, so the trade goes away, but now you've got a bunch of money and you've got a bunch of smart people and you've got Alameda Research, who I heard this funny story. Someone told me that um, the name Alameda Research is because you needed a bank license and research is like the most safe thing that you can get. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like we knew banks were going to shut us down because before Silvergate didn't exist, Signature, you know, there were not yet U.S. banks that were happy with crypto. Instead, there are just a lot that did not want to have to fucking think about it. Yeah. And we just knew that was going to be a thing and that if we named our company like shitcoin day traders inc like they that they'd probably just reject us for the bank or whatever the teller would accept this they don't care but but i mean compliance just have a field day with that but i mean no one doesn't like research totally everyone loves research so okay so yeah. now alameda we're a few years later right uh alameda is basically you know the moby dick of, of crypto whales right you guys are responsible for like i don't know the real numbers you know these like 10 percent of what feels like crypto moving right. in the markets at any one time um, which, you know, this means you guys have the potential to move markets, cause liquidations. It's, it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And you never want to be intentionally moving markets. You never want to be doing something because of the impact it will have. Basically what you want to be doing is finding ways to, to provide liquidity, finding places where there's excess demand and not enough supply and, and being there. And so. But but not to not to sort of like intentionally cause movements um, or or anything like that. There's this argument that um, market makers add value to the world by providing liquidity, right? And yep. so you can have a positive impact impact on the world because yep. if you're a hedge fund, you make markets more efficient. You bring down prices when there are premiums. It, is this, do you buy this? Do you believe this? I know that I know that technically you do that, but is that adding value right. to the world? So I believe it, but I mean that that's without making a claim about how important it is, like about about how how big of an impact it has. Like it may be a small one, it may be yeah. a very small one, and this is only describing sort of legitimate market making behavior. But but yeah, I think the basic argument is something like, look, if you're doing arbitrage, that means there's too much demand in some place, which is why it's trading too high. Someone's getting getting ripped off because of that. As you can get there and provide liquidity, you'll make the spreads lower, you'll get them a better fill, and you'll make market pricing more efficient everywhere. F you know, fewer transaction costs, more uh, you know, 
more accurate predictions of future prices. And so to the extent that markets can help bring liquidity and information to the world, you're helping enhance both of those is like the outline of the argument. And I basically do buy it, although again, it's it's like sort of a second order effect. So it's that's not necessarily say that it's like the most important thing for the world or anything. Yeah. Yeah, I was having the debate with a friend over whether or not short sellers like hedge funds that only go short are valuable or not valuable. Uh, and I was taking yep. an argument against the value uh, added to the world. And uh, he was arguing for them being quite valuable because they, you know, sniff out the uh, the bad players. Yeah, I, th I think the right prior is that they're valuable. Now, you could yeah. maybe you study them and you're like, okay, but these guys in particular, these guys are fucking idiots or these guys are like malicious or something. Yeah. So I don't want to say that they're like it's a spectrum necessarily too. valuable. Yeah. But I think the prior is that that would be your guess. Yeah. Um, all right, let's jump into what everybody wants to know about, which is FTX, which uh, Mike Novogratz um, asked him about uh, asked him about FTX, and he said FTX is the most innovative exchange, crypto, not just crypto exchange in the world, but exchange, you know, period in the entire world. What um, what's what's the backstory behind FTX? You've got Alameda, you guys are making stupid amounts of money. Why why did you guys go launch this thing? So, it was like late twenty eighteen, and I always wanted to start an exchange because they just seemed like really important products in the crypto ecosystem that were worth a lot, played a really big role, and were not necessarily even the hardest to build. Sort of that combined with just a, an extremely large amount of frustration with the current products. Um, some of this was almost a like, you know, if you won't fucking fix your product, I will do it for you type thing. There's like two exchanges whose derivatives were together more than half of all crypto volume. And it was just a total mess. I mean, it's like $350 million of customer funds lost to like, you know, improper liquidations that year. Um, there was, I mean, impending lawsuits, there's matching engines that couldn't keep up. Um, there's just this notion, which crypto is still hasn't fully unlearned, although it's making progress, which is that, that you should have 500 different wallets within a single exchange that like, if you want to trade Ethereum futures, and then you want to trade Bitcoin futures, you gotta buy some ETH and put it in your ETH wallet, then take it out, trade for Bitcoin, put it in your Bitcoin wallet. Yep. It's just like this useless mini game that like half your time is spent dealing with your collateral, you know, and people are getting liquidated left and right because they forget about one of their wallets. Things weren't getting better. And eventually like, look, it's just like at this point, we just definitely can build a better product. Like, you know, it's just like these like too egregious, but that still doesn't mean it would be a success um, because maybe it would never get any users. And if you founded a crypto derivatives exchange today and had a great product, my guess is you would never get any users. How many people do you get coming up to you begging you for another crypto derivatives exchange in this space? Not like many. zero? Yeah. How, when was the last time you checked out, what is the like oldest or newest exchange that you've ever looked at seriously? The newest exchange I've looked at is probably, yeah. that I've actually used is probably FTX actually. <laughs> yeah. And and in fact, if you look at exchanges ranked by volume, you know, FTX is it's whatever number, like three or four or something globally. Um, in order to get to an exchange newer than FTX, you need to go to like number 30 or 40 what, or like something. like MX or something or... Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like, it's like, you get to this tier where you're like not even sure they're real. Yeah. And the really damning thing is not, not only are you not sure they're real, like, 
the world's not sure they're real, and it's never bothered figuring out. It's just, like, doesn't... No one even cares that much. Yeah. And I think there's a few things. First of all, people just got bored of caring about new exchanges. But second of all, I think, like, this base got a lot better. Um, yeah. Exchanges gotten a ton better in the last three years. And because of that, there's just a lot less demand. So, so I think that, like, not only do you need to get customers, but there is a race. And I think, like, we were right at the end. I mean, I think, you know, we founded spring 2019. Really, 2019. I'm not sure anyone ever would have used FTX. Like, think it's possible we've missed. Our so you guys, you guys launched spring of 2019. Yeah. And, and when did you think about the idea of launching that? Like, when did you seriously think about it? Late 2018. Late. 2018? Um, it was late 2018 when we made the call to start building it out. So late. So take us from late 2018 to spring of 2019. Like, how do you think about? I think what would be fascinating is basically the build versus buy conversations. Do we go? white label custodians? Do we white label a matching engine or do we build everything in house? What did you guys end up doing at the very beginning? We felt pretty strongly that we were going to build everything. And the reason is partially that was our, our whole value prop was that we thought we could build a better product. Yeah. And so, you know, that means we have to build it like that. That, that is sort of like a lot of the point of it. Um, but we actually had the opposite question of like, should we build a product that other people can white label? Like, should the goal of FTX be a back end that other exchanges can can load up? And we talked to a lot of exchanges at the time about like, hey, like you don't have a derivatives exchange. All your friends do. Don't you want one? Hey, we've got one. We had some serious conversations, nearly pulled the trigger on, on one or two. Um, well, why would you do uh, that? Because you're basically eating into your own market share. It's true. On the other hand, you know, this was, I don't know, two, two, two years ago. I didn't, we didn't really know anyone in crypto exactly. We yeah. knew some players, like, like I sort of like knew like the, the employees of other exchanges, but I didn't, I didn't know how to reach users, you know, and I didn't know how to even start that. Um, and it was, it was sort of like what you do on day one, you launch your exchange and then I tweet, I didn't have followers. I mean. I don't know if you email my mom, ask her if she wants to trade. Like, I mean, but it really was just like, what, what's even step one here to getting users? On the other hand, here are these products who have, what, like 20 million users at the time. And those users are actively trading on the platform every day. And so we're sort of like, look, like it's, it's just like a ton of value there. And I'm launching a great derivative exchange, even if we only get half that or a third of that and so that was sort of the the thought behind it didn't really happen for complicated reasons part of which was we ended up believing ourselves more than we thought we would frankly part of it was the ftt presale. i think that was the first time that people generally started believing that ftx might be successful um was the ftt presale? yeah hmm. when yeah. um and because that helped because people you you guys marketed it well you i know I, I mean you raised some money which you know was always helpful right I, it was it was the signaling it was just like what we took away from that was that people other people thought this might be a success do you think they believed in you and, guys because you had alameda behind the firm oh i think yeah right? I, I think i i think it's a lot of it was, well that and also just that they like some of them knew the team and um, and I think that, 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 that was most of it. And I don't think it was like a super sophisticated calculation at the time, but, but I think people are sort of like, look, like, seems like they have a shot. 
Yeah. And, and I think that made us feel like we had a shot. Yeah. So walk us through the Blockfolio acquisition because Ed Moncada has to be one of my favorite people in all of crypto. He's like, I don't, I don't know your relationship. I'm assuming you're close, but like, uh, yep. he's just a great guy. And, um, yeah, he's did, a really cool guy. Did they approach you? Did you approach them? I know there were some bankers involved like Spartan group and galaxy. Did you, someone yep. like approach someone else? What happened here? So I basically like they were looking for a white label partner. Um, they wanted to put trading into Blockfolio. You know, I think they, they, they approached a number of people, including us. Um, but but I, I think that they sort of, you know, I, I think we are sort of the ones that they're most targeting with that. And and then after a bit of that, you know, they basically just sort of said, like, you know, it's that that's cool and all, but, like, should we be doing more? Like, should, you know, are, w would you guys be interested in actually talking about, like, M&A? And, and I think, like, my immediate reaction is like, oh yeah, no, obviously that, that makes sense. Yeah. Like that, that seems like a, a thing that, that would fit. And so then we, you know, started talking about, uh, about what an actual acquisition would, would look like and sort of, you know, work that out over the next couple months. Hmm. And so, yeah, I think the trend of um, brands buying media companies and, and platforms that have users and basically distribution is yeah. going to become a lot more popular. Like you just saw, um, completely agree. In like the SaaS space, I don't know if you know these companies, but HubSpot just acquired this newsletter called The Hustle. Um, like MailChimp, the email provider, acquired a company, yep. uh, a media company. Like I think it's going to become, and, and I think there are a few other deals that I know of that are going to go through in the coming months. That, Completely agree. You know, I think it's just going to become yeah, more popular. Totally agree. And I think there's just this thing of like, you find some businesses which is like, I would give anything for a big user base. You find other ones where like, I have this massive user base and for the life of me, like, I can't get, I know the monetization is a fucking grind. And like, it's, it's not that there's none, but it's sort of like, you know, really not getting that much. And it's a huge hassle. And, and it's just like an, an obvious sort of like pair. Yeah. When you think about marketing, because um, we, we've talked to your marketing team, and I think we'll probably end up doing stuff in the future. But um, like, how much do you how do you think about marketing in terms of like, okay, if I can get like, do you know the customer your customer acquisition cost down to the T? Like, are you like, oh, if I can get a big whale to start using FTX, I'll spend $100,000 to acquire them? Or is it a little messier than that? The problem is that not all customers are the same. And in fact, they're like different by orders of magnitude. And so like, sure, you could have a customer acquisition cost of like $2. Um, we've ran campaigns at a customer acquisition cost of like 10 cents or 3 cents. Um, and they're super repeatable, super scalable. They did not take a lot of work. We just sit there doing those all day and build up like the world's biggest user base. Like I think we could have 100 million users if we really wanted. The problem is that none of them would ever use our, ever actually trade our product, right? Like all you have to do is say like you get a free dollar for signing up here, and now you have a one dollar customer acquisition cost. The problem is that those customers are not selected for having been interested in your product. They're selecting for wanting to make a free dollar. And, and this is like really fundamental to campaigns that you can run in crypto because so many of them are basically paying people to sign up um, that like, sure, you can do it, but like, what are you actually buying yourself? You know, are you buying yourself users who are going to be relevant at all? And the answer is often just, no, you're not. And and so where, where that leaves you is sort of like, you know, just pure customer acquisition costs doesn't tell you much. You need to know which customers you're getting. There are different sorts of customers. You're going to use different products. We're going to have like different expertises for different ones. It just sort of like all around 
quite disparate. And and so what that means is that like you have to be just thinking a lot more specifically about what you're doing and what you're getting out of it and why you think it's good, especially when you're doing sort of more targeted campaigns. So anyway, that's sort of a aside. I guess there are three lenses that I think about it through. One of which is basically just like, I don't know, like is this generically a good way of, you know, whatever advertising or whatever it is. I don't know how to think about that, but I don't know. You can, you can sort of use standard metrics. I think it's worth a bit, not a ton. A second is this sort of sense of like, should this make sense? Like, should we be the one advertising here or should we be the one acquiring this business, you know? And like, if you think the answer is yes, if you think that like it makes more sense for you to do it than the people currently doing it, then that's a compelling argument that like, I don't know, probably if the market clearing price is sufficient, then you should do it, you know? That's the second way. But there's also a third way, which I've been thinking about a lot more recently. If you look at like who has recruited like the most users to FTX, basically like people who have been sort of like customer support representatives or ambassadors, and it's not been the ambassadors with like the largest Twitter followings that that hasn't predicted it super well, which is sort of weird. So you would definitely think it would be, but, but it hasn't been instead it's, it's been ones that we'd never heard of that no one had ever heard of, but they're, they're great guys and they really care and they're excited to work with us and they want us to do well. They use the product. Um, and, and it fucking shows like whenever they're trying to get people to use it, everyone can tell that they're authentic. Everyone can tell they actually sincerely really want, them to use it and want it to go well. Totally. Um, anyway, I've been sort of like spending a lot of time just thinking about these effects and, 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 and really trying to think about like, look, I'm sure there's lots of moderately good advertising campaigns we could run. Like there's just no chance there aren't. Um, and I think a lot of people on our team are doing good jobs with that, but you know, then you get to sort of like, what can you do to make a brand? I don't think the answers are obvious necessarily, but I, I do think that there's something there. And I think that like, you know, you can have some predictions about like which things you can do would have a chance at, 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 at having huge impact. And, and that's sort of a thing I'm thinking about too, is just like, not just trying to have some impact, but really trying to like, you know, what could, what could be the thing that everyone thinks of, you know, when they think of FTX, if we do it. Right. What yeah. could be a thing that could get 20 million users, not not just like 20,000. And I think, you know, you're thinking bigger things, but I also think thinking bigger things isn't enough. And I think that like, you know, obviously we sort of like bought the Miami Heat, you know, stadium rights recently. Um, and, and I think that's sort of, I don't know, I've been really excited with a lot of parts of that, including how much attention that's got, you know? Like that's gotten more attention than anything we've ever done by a very large margin. And it hasn't even started yet. And I felt very differently about that than like a lot of similar sounding things. Um, I think it has a lot of nice properties. I think it's, you know, it's a really exciting partnership in a way that like a lot of similar, very similar things wouldn't be. You know, I, I think that like there are a lot of teams that just like wouldn't have nearly that same impact. I think that there's, you know, people keep talking about buying these little patches on like athletes jerseys, like everyone's trying to sell those nowadays. That's sort of the new hot shit. Like, you know, that you're talking to like a hip sports agent, if they're trying to sell you on the idea of, of sponsoring the patches on uh, their team's jerseys. That's worthless. Um, don't, don't do that. It's worth like, <laughs> yeah, it's worth no one, like no one, like, can you name any 
jerseys on any athletes, any patches on any athletes' jerseys? Like, no. Yeah. Right? It's like no one cares about the 10th largest, like the 10th most visible brand of a team. Totally. Right? So did the Miami Heat approach you, Sam? Or did you approach them? Or was there some agent here? Like, what? What? When? How did this go down? Yeah. So, I mean, without going into sort of all the details, like, I think, I think you know, at the beginning, we were definitely the ones reaching out uh, to people. I mean, certainly since that's happened, um, we have had just a very large number of people approach us. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, half the professional sporting teams in North America. I, I, I know someone who works high up at a, an NFL team, and he reached out. He said, hey, do you know uh, uh, the CEO of FTX? Um, we want to, we want to get some naming rights, uh, going with them. I was like, I'm pretty sure you can reach out to them directly. I'm, but I'm also pretty sure there's more than one person reaching out to them. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's, it, everyone is. As soon as it started, I'm like, yeah. Oh wait, of course that was going to happen. Yeah. Of course. But, uh, I, and, and the other things you get the adverse selection when people reach out to you, like when people are reaching out to you, you know, it's going to be the patches on the jerseys because that's what they've got left to sell. And they're hoping someone goes for. Totally. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Well, I think it was a good play. Everyone loves Miami on Twitter and you've got Francis Suarez, right? Who's, you know, not yeah. Miami Dade, but city of Miami. Um, yeah, so. it, it's a, it's a, it's a really nice synergy and it's, uh, so I, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, yeah. and you know, excited what's going to come there, but we, we've got a number of other things like that. You know, I mean, we, we sponsored, um, you know, we're, we're a big sponsor of, uh, of Dave Portnoy now. Um, on a, oh, with Blockfolio, a, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm also really excited to see how that rolls out. That was genius. That was genius. Yeah, he's also someone who people really care about. And, yeah. and, and you know, people people listen to. And, and I think that's big. Totally. You know, I always sort of use this test internally of, like, if, this, if I learned this person were driving a Tesla, would that make me more likely to buy a Tesla? Or would I not care? It's, like, one of the things I ask myself with any naming deal. I think it's a good proxy. Yeah. Do you flipping, flipping this around, do you guys get acquisition offers a lot to acquire FTX? We used to, um, I think that like we've gotten a number in our history. Um, they've been dying down over time, uh, basically because, so our sense is basically that like, whenever people reach out to acquire us, their, their, their hope is that we're just going to sell way too cheap. Yeah. Well, because like that, the number that's what of people actually... who can actually acquire FTX is probably diminishing quite quickly as the, exactly. it's just the like, value, yeah, the enterprise value goes up. Exactly. Like very few people have like the actual cash on hand necessary to do that. Have you ever gotten an acquisition and so, offer from someone like a Bank of America or JP Morgan or someone like, like a more traditional firm? We, we, not really. Like we've gotten sort of like very brief kicking of the tires, but again, it's sort of like it got cut off in like stage 0.1. Because basically just like quote a number and they're like, oh yeah, no, not interested at that yep. valuation. And again, I think like, you know, their, their, their hope was that they could, I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable thing for them to hope for. Also, it's just that like, we just like quote way too low of a number. Yeah. What do you, what's the value of FTX do you think right now? Um, it's a really interesting question and obviously no one knows for sure, but you know, I, I think you can sort of look at like. You know, you you can look at comparables here, right? Like you you can look at what Coinbase and and Kraken and and you know Bitmex and and you know the various URL companies and I mean you know I I don't know who knows, but I I think twenty is sort of the ballpark that you get to. Yeah, one of your traders, I forget his name. Shoot, um, I really like the guy, but he was he had a good thread about March twelfth or March thirteenth. Yep. 
mean, it's uh, probably Trebico. Yeah, 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 exactly. And one of the interesting things that I learned there, because I'm not a trader, right? Um, he's like, this was really tough for us. We handled it well. A lot of people handled it well. What you guys don't realize on the outside is how much worse this could have gone, right? He's like, you literally yeah. could have, he's like, you literally could have had Bitcoin going down to like $500 pretty quickly. And yeah. like, can you just, can you explain what happened on March 12th or 13th, what that day was like and like how much worse it could have gone? Yeah, it could have been a total fucking nightmare. I mean, it, and in particular, like the big thing is that you had these cascading liquidations, right? If it weren't for that, the risk would have been a lot lower because, frankly, no one who was holding lots of Bitcoin thought that it was worth I – mean, no one thought it was worth 3500 but it did get that low. But everyone thought it was worth more than that. No one was like, oh, yeah, no, you got to sell here. This is obviously like, you know, an overpriced Bitcoin. Even the people selling didn't think that because they didn't want to be selling. They were selling because they were getting liquidated, you know? And so I think it's one of these things where, like, it was almost accidental that it printed up there. Um and uh or down there rather and and it just happened because you know someone gets liquidated which triggers a liquidation of someone else which triggers a liquidation of someone else and eventually like, billions of dollars got liquidated the, the 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 scary thing about those is that it's not clear why they stop you know it could just keep going and the problem is that like when you're driving down to that sort of range um there are a lot of businesses and deals in crypto that were just premised on the assumption that Bitcoin would never go below 5K. You know, like mining businesses, a lot of lenders. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so there's just like a ton of other people who didn't have leveraged futures positions on, but who nonetheless had a basically an economic situation that was unsustainable below 5K. And, and, and what you worry is that you have like this sort of 2008 like situation where eventually it becomes clear that like, it might cascade through the whole industry, you know, that like almost nothing will be left. That was a real worry. And it was just like every thousand dollars that Bitcoin went down, another chunk of the industry became unprofitable. Hmm. So um, why, did, so how far away were we from going, from, from shit really hitting the fan? I mean, are we talking yeah, hours? Not very days? far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, six hours 12 hours i don't know like crazy i mean it's, it, it, it was it's dropping pretty quickly at some points there you know it wasn't like just slowly bleeding down like this was it went from like 9k to like 4k in in about a day so the answer can't be like you know there's a limit to, to how long the answer to that can be right like because yep. we just actually didn't take that long to get very close to it um i think like in one hour, it could have happened if thing if it was a very bad hour, but each hour is not rated to be that hour. And but it, you know, if it had gone on for six to twelve hours, maybe one of them would have. It's not a whole lot of time. Hmm. Nuts. Um, do you think you'll run FTX and Alameda? And then we've got a third thing, Serum, which we haven't even talked about, which I don't think we'll have time for. But you're gonna give a one liner if you want to. If you want to mention what it is, because there's a lot of investors listening, but like, do you think you'll run these three companies forever, or do you think eventually you'll put in CEOs in place? Like, what what is Sam Bankman-Fried doing in five years from now? Yeah, I mean, so Alameda, it's like already the case that I've taken a pretty big step back there, and I'm, you know, you know, I'm not doing the day to day there, and you know, I'm sort of 
you know, excited it's been able to hire a bunch of great people. Uh, in terms of the other ones, I mean, you know, I, I think there's nothing imminently there. And I think that, like, they're in a position where, like, you know, I mean, I think I'm, I'm important to them. And I think that they're important and I want them to do well. But, I mean, FTX in particular, I don't foresee myself taking the gas off of anytime soon. Serum's an interesting one because it's a decentralized ecosystem. And so I, like, did a lot to help it boot up. Um, but over time, a lot of the drive is getting more and more people to be working on it and pushing on it and building on it. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think um, FTX will, like, right now, I think, I'm assuming how you look at FTX is, you know, you know you're competing against, like, Coinbase and Binance and things like that and the other exchanges. Yep. Do you think eventually it will be more... Uh, it will, Look, to back it up, you guys are now trading fractional stock offerings of things like Tesla and Apple and Amazon yep. and pre-IPO Coinbase. Do you guys see yourself competing eventually with New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ? That'd be pretty cool. Um, and I would be pretty sad if we never felt like a competitor to any stock exchanges. Although, we'll see where it goes. You know, Maybe it ends up being international stock exchanges. I, I don't know for sure, but... Part of our thesis of the future is like we're an exchange you know we have exchange technology and you can use exchange technology to exchange things actually lots of things um not just cryptocurrencies and you know we've built a matching engine and a risk engine a liquidation engine and a gui and mobile app and api and a brand and customers and you know all of those things help help out with whatever trading you're offering yeah Let's um. We're gonna start to wind this down, Sam, so you can uh, you can get a little sleep. Uh, let's talk about health for a second. Um, you yep. do. Are you still vegan? And do you still not drink? Uh, both are true. Nice. Um, I don't religiously not drink. I I, I think I have like two drinks a year. I don't yeah. know something like that. I think most most like, people would close. call that yeah not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> two drinks a year. Um, yeah. I actually haven't I haven't been drinking for about six months. I feel much better than I did when I was drinking. Um, all right, three kind of rapid fire questions here and then uh, yep. and then you can ask me one question and then you can hit the beanbag. Um, there's a lot of non-crypto folks actually listening to this podcast. Um, yep. you know, let's call it 28 year olds who maybe work in finance, they work in banking, they work in tech, they're looking to break into crypto. A lot of them are entrepreneurial. What is the biggest opportunity for entrepreneurs uh, who are looking at the crypto space right now? Yeah, um, and there's a ton. It's often the case in sort of rapidly exploding areas. Um, I think the biggest things that I would say is whatever. You know, I'm gonna have some opinions on like specifically which projects or companies or, or whatever you should work for or or have high upside or I think are gonna be the future or something like that. But everyone's got opinions on that, and and I don't know. I mean. You can just Google what I think there or, you know, listen to whatever through people think. I think what I would say more generally is like what I see is the thing that like can just bring huge value and, and you can get a lot of value from doing um, is not just from sort of generically, you know, doing something or working on something important in crypto or something like that. Um, it's basically like try hard, do a good job and follow through to completion. And I think a lot of people... They just like fail one of those tests, you know, and, and it's like when when sort of a, a, a market and an, and an ecosystem is this good, um, you don't need to be shooting to have the you don't necessarily need to have chosen literally the best possible idea in order for it to work. 
the bar is a lot lower than that. But what you do need to do is actually have a product and actually get it to launch, you know, and 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 actually like release things and 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 try and get users. You're not going to get any users if you never try. And and you're you know and, and so I think what I'd say above anything else is like, yeah, build something, have it be a reasonable thing, have it be something people have asked for, and actually finish it and drive it to completion. And that that's going to be more important than what it is you're working on. Hmm. Uh, what's the most controversial decision you've had to make at uh, Alameda or actually just, yeah, in your career? Oh, boy. I mean, well, publicly or privately. I mean, behind the scenes, there's, you know, when it's sort of first starting up Alameda, there's a huge number of things that were, that were complete messes. And... I know how to manage exactly at that point and, you know, ended up with like some people who were pissed off at, at each other and me and, and I had to sort of resolve that. But in terms of sort of more publicly controversial things, I think like, I mean, it's a silly example, but like, you know, how, when and how to expire the Trump contracts. I mean, that, that got a lot of, that, that, that got pretty hot. Yeah. That, that is in hot water there. Um, yeah, Twitter was fine. I, uh, I think it, at some point, someone's asking for Trump March because Trump Feb wasn't giving enough time to see what would happen. Um, I, I don't know. That, that's like one of them. I think there are a number of things that were not actively controversial, but people sort of like disagreed with at the time. I, I, I think like using USD instead of USDT as, as a base for FTX, having linear instead of inverse features, um, having a cross margin instead of isolated margin. Um, I don't know. I think in retrospect, I'm happy with most of those decisions, but yeah, cool. Well, we can finish if you want to ask me one question. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, you know, what's your, uh, favorite and least favorite part of FTX? I am, will preface this by saying I'm not a trader. So I work, we work with a lot of traders, right. And we help a lot of exchanges yep. acquire customers who are traders. So I know the space decently well, but I'm not a trader. I think my favorite part of FTX is how quickly you guys launch new products and how you guys capitalize basically on, you guys capitalize on culture, which I think a lot of companies don't understand that aspect of marketing. I'm a, I'm a marketer and a salesperson, right? And I'm not a product person. I'm not a trader. Yep. And so when I see companies that can move crazy quickly on product, I think it's, I think it's cool. I respect it. I know how hard it is when I see companies that move crazy quickly on marketing. I'm like, I'm always blown away. And you guys do yep. what I think one in a hundred companies can do, which is you capture opportunity when culture changes. And that's really hard to do. Um, my least favorite part is, uh, I'm in New York and, um, I can't sign uh, up. Yeah. I tried signing up for, for yeah. blockfolio trading and I got denied. So I could try to VPN in or I could uh, just play it, play it by the rules. So that's, yeah. I mean, um, you, you and every other exchange needs a bit license. Yeah. It's somewhere on the roadmap. I, you know, maybe, maybe not in the immediate one, but we'd, we'd love to, to, to get there. I don't know, hopefully in the next couple of years. So, yeah. Cool. Sam, when are you going to go to sleep yeah. tonight? Oh, geez. I mean, uh, I've got, I've got some time from like eight thirty or nine a.m. I think. I've got, I've got kind of back to back. You crack me up, man. Until then, so. All right. Well, nice work. Good work, um, Sam. This has been awesome. This is one of the, my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. Um, this will be out very soon, so I hope everybody enjoys it. 
Um, and again, this was Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX, Alameda, and Serum. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.